You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, my father's Greek. My mother's Italian. They were both born in their respective countries and then years later came to Australia and they met then years later after that. My dad came to Australia when he was 22 and my mum came when she was like seven years old. Mm. And then many years later, obviously, they met. And I was born in Australia. But then my father wanted to try and make a living in Greece, try and make it work there. And so he moved us all there virtually as soon as I was born, all meaning my mother, myself and him because I was the eldest. My, I have a younger brother, five years younger. And we stayed there for a few years. Greek was my first language, but it just couldn't work. So we came back and that's where my mother's parents were, my grandparents. So we lived with them for a while until my mum and dad found a house, built a house, but we were there until I was living with them until probably eight years old and then really just grew up in Australia. But spent time in Greece whenever we could go back because we had family there and had very strong bonds and roots there. It was difficult, man, because I felt like I very much belonged in Greece, but also sort of belonged in Australia, but really belonged in Greece. But then the more time I'd spend in Australia, I felt more grounded there and familiar. And then when we'd go back to Greece, I felt the excitement again, but also the disconnect from not being there for a while. And so with all my cousins, I felt on the outside. It was so very, my childhood for me was very, uh, it was very turbulent. Mm. And it wasn't just my childhood, it was also my relationship with my parents and how they were with each other and there was violence there and, and volatility. And, and so I just, I felt very displaced in my life. How, um, how did that contribute to your life or did it contribute to your life? Oh, yeah. Because now you live in America, which yeah, is yeah. a completely different country uh, yeah, from yeah, yeah, Greece yeah, yeah, and yeah, Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. big time, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the way those circumstances and those relationships and the way that I perceive those relationships, right, so the way that I felt in my own body because I can remember, man. Like I can remember being in my body, being very scared, being very timid, feeling very awkward. And what I did was to feel safe and better, I would watch TV and eat food. So food was my first vice, if you like. Uh, later on, as I got older, other vices took over. But food was my first vice and still can be a vice today as well. It's an old one, you know. And so that's what I dealt with, just feeling better in my body because I felt so not good in my body. I felt very scared all the time with, with my dad. What was I going to expect? I didn't feel safe. I, I didn't feel like I belonged. Like I came to Australia, I couldn't speak English. So I went into pre-language, which was okay because all the kids there couldn't really speak English, right? It's pre-language, like preschool. But then coming out of pre-language, I still couldn't speak English that well. And so I felt very displaced there. And I was bullied a lot as well as a kid. And so all of those experiences, being overweight, because of the food, being insular, uh, all of those experiences really led to, I feel isolated, I feel alone, I don't feel understood. I have all these things that I want to say, but I'm not saying them. I feel judged, I feel embarrassed. So as an adult, initially, I compensated a lot. And so that looked like, you know, building my body, getting strong, being very athletic, 
I started moving away. I started losing weight, moving away from being that overweight kid and being performance-based and defining my worth and my value by my output. You know, how much pain could I put myself under and make sure that everyone could know that, oh, he's, he's putting himself in a lot of pain and he's doing all these things and he's coming first or second or third, whatever, you know, but he's, he's dominating. Mm-hmm. I needed that validation because I couldn't get that from my father because he wasn't unavailable. He was emotionally and physically unavailable. Even though my parents stayed together, he, he worked a lot and he, he was a, a gambling addict and he was never an alcoholic or a drug addict or anything like that, but he, he mixed with a lot of interesting characters, let's just say, mm-hmm. especially when you're in the gambling world. So he was very disconnected from family, yet wanted to be part of the family. Looking back now, I could see that as his confusion. He's the type of man that would, you know, if he did well in gambling, he would buy his presents and, and all that. But if he didn't do well, he would be violent and aberrant and angry and all those things, right? And very disconnected, very frustrated, impatient and abrasive. And as an adult, I was that person because I transitioned from being very shy and timid to being very angry and fighting a lot and drinking alcohol and just sort of play hard, work hard, all of that. But my work hard was just looping. I wasn't really gaining any success. So I had to pretend I was being successful. And that was wearing more masks and then sex addiction, love compulsion came into play, prostitution, an, an array of just let me numb as much as I can to get away from the thing that I'm avoiding the most, which is, you know, the trauma that I experienced as a kid, the pain that I was harboring as a child. I can relate to you in some extent. I didn't have the childhood like you had, but there was a point in my life where I would do things just to numb myself from the pain. It was an experience fairly recent in my life when I recognized that I had sacrificed all of truly who I am to live an identity that was right for the world. Like I was, which was also... Uh, fulfilling in career for me. So I, I always am very grateful for the opportunity because I really did love it, but that was the only thing that I did. And it led me to just bad relationship, cheating, um, just not eating healthy, like just basically abusing all sides of my mm-hmm. life except one, <laughs> which was my career, which is what I loved. I'd realized when I quit all of that, I went through a period because I was in so much pain that I had to just numb the pain through becoming a borderline alcoholic, really, and doing all the crazy things that a person does when they don't know what to do to feel alive again. So I relate to that. What was or was there a turn that happened that one day you were able to recognize that everything that you're doing is to just numb yourself from everything? And what was that? Yeah, there were a number of turns, I would say, where I had the realization that this is not working. Like who I'm being is not really me, but I didn't want to change. I didn't want to shift my identity. I was too scared because everything I'd created around my life, my friends, my persona, the way I thought people saw me, I didn't want to change any of that because it was so grounded in uh, me feeling validated by other people's opinions and perspectives, which I, I wasn't aware of at the time, but that was what was circulating my ability to just continue to numb. And, and I didn't even know what I was numbing. It wasn't a conscious thing that I'm waking up in the morning saying, oh, I am harboring a lot of pain from my childhood that has formed certain behavioral traits that I'm attempting to avoid. What can I do today to numb that? Mm-hmm. It wasn't that in a conversation. It was this unconscious, my pain feels so much. I can't pinpoint it. I need pleasure, 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 pleasure. Well, how can I get that like that? 
right? Is it adrenaline? Is it telling the world how great I am? Is it sex? Is it pursuing women? Is it cheating, something, whatever's exhilarating? You know, like what can I do to just keep avoiding who I truly am and what I truly need to address? And so for me, the biggest catalyst was uh, as a number of years ago, I had, a, I had a breakup and she found out and she discovered that I was cheating in that relationship. And the infidelity was very long and dense. And witnessing her in her pain, it prompted a great deal and brought up a great deal of shame in me and old memories started flooding me. It was very unfortunate that those were the circumstances, unfortunate for us and for her, and, and for me it was a lot of pain, that that's what was required to bring that level of awareness forth. And that's what it was. And so I made a decision there and then that no matter what, and I meant no matter what, I am exploring this and I'm not going to continue living this life because I could see it in every area of my life. My businesses were failing and I would blame everything and everyone but me. I would not take responsibility. Oh, it's the market. Oh, my business partners. Oh, I don't have enough money. If I had more money, this would work. Like whatever it is, right? Whatever the parameters were, they were outside of me, including my relationships. And so I just went very deep and I gave myself three choices. No matter what, I am addressing this, I should say. But there were three outcomes is probably a more accurate depiction. And that is, I either end up in a mental asylum, I commit suicide, or I get through this. And I get through this and be the person and the man that I know I can be, want to be, and deserve to be. And no matter what, I will not give up. Now, I know you may think, well, suicide is giving up. That's as far as, as deep as I was willing to go. Like I would go, or until I, I can't go any deeper. And that was really the catalyst that, about that situation. And then what happens next? The awareness comes, of course. The awareness <laughs> many is dark, the one. Many, many years of darkness mm-hmm. uh, and shadow exploration and, and exploring inner places within myself that I don't think any human being should go to. And at the same time, paradoxically, every human being needs to go to if that's their calling. For me, I just had to hit rock bottom. That was my personal journey. Maybe that's my dharma, that's my soul's evolution, I don't know. But I had to hit rock bottom multiple times and really play in those ranges that I had been avoiding so much all of my life. And I had to deal with them in kind, compassionate ways. I had to be very opposite to how I was. And so I had to go into unknown places within my own psychology and my own emotional and spiritual being. And I definitely lent into people. I accumulated a lot of debt for myself, unhealthy debt, credit card debt. I lived on credit cards. I gave my businesses up. I stopped working. When I worked, I would wash cars and clean toilets. And this is someone with multiple degrees, including postgraduate degrees. I just, for whatever reason, I couldn't get a job. And the universe was just saying, mm, you've got to go a little deeper and just do what you need to do, but you've got to go deeper. There were times when I didn't have food to eat. I couldn't afford it. Very blessed that I had a roof over my head, meaning my grandparents' house. They weren't there at the time because they had transitioned into an assisted living facility. But I had been looking after them for many years prior to that. It was just getting a little too much. Now they needed 24-7 help. Mm-hmm. So I had this house. It wasn't a big house because I had this home by myself. And that's where I did a lot of my, my work, my solitude work. How is it for, and the reason why I ask, I'm asking and exploring this is it's a place that maybe not in the same capacity as you had to go through, but we all have to do or have to go through at some point mm. in our lives, right? Even if you're not, somebody who's listening may not be going through right now, but may have gone through or maybe going through eventually in the future. What does that solitude look like? And what's the work that somebody is doing when they're in that place? Yeah. So the solitude is, is very deliberate. It was for me, it was me saying, 
I need to stop distracting myself. And that's not to say I can't have joy and fun and play because that's an integral part of the healing process, pleasure back into the body. But it's the right kind of pleasure. It's pleasure that you're aware of. It's not distracting pleasure. It's not, I don't want to face this thing that I need to look at and therefore I'm going to go and eat food or I'm going to go have sex. It's more right now in this moment, I'm becoming dysregulated. I've pushed my edges. I need to regulate myself. One of the ways I'm going to regulate myself is I'm going to resource myself. It could be with some slow breathing. And then I'm going to maybe have some fruit or go for a walk in nature or go jump in the ocean and put pleasure back in my nervous system. And I'll live to fight another day and I'll attack this thing or I'll face this thing or I'll work with this thing tomorrow or the day after or whenever the cycle is there. During the process, I created this uh, cyclical process for actually working with pain just by being with it. But the solitude question is spending a lot of time by myself, really just being with me, being with my thoughts, being with my body, being with my movement, being with my tears, being with my anger, being with my emotions, like letting them I spent many, many a day, many, many hours on that lounge room floor just emoting and being uncontrollably and facing some very dark aspects of myself, demonic aspects of myself, if you like, really real dense shadow parts of me that I had been suppressing and repressing because I thought society doesn't want to see that. I don't want to see that. I've been told that I'm ugly. I don't mean physically ugly, my, like my expression is ugly. So let me just let me just dump that. Let me just stuff it away, but it's there. It's part of who I am. So I had to bring all of that up. Now, I would do some work with a counselor or a shaman or a spiritual healer or an energy worker or, or, or a coach or whatever, and then I would take that and I would be in that by myself. That was what solitude was like for me. It was less contact with people, which was hard for some of my friends. And in during that process, I had to let go of some friendships, not because they did anything wrong, but because I was changing as a person. And what those friendships were perpetuating was an old version of me. You want to quit heroin, you've got to get out of the, the smack house. It's as simple as that. And they were my smack house. So I had to get out of what was validating unhealthy behavior. And that was really tough because these friendships were very loyal. I'm talking about their friendships that it, I could call them at any point and say, I need you right now. That'd be there. They didn't do anything wrong, just outgrowing each other in that way. And that was very difficult because they were also, they had forged my identity. They had been my rocks for so long, shared everything, such diverse experiences. And beyond that, they were also, because they were childhood friends, they were also friendships that pulled me out of my violent home. I was able to spend time with them. I, I saw them at some level. My teenage boy, my pre-teenage boy saw us as a saviour. And so I had to work with that in my nervous system as well. And so the solitude is, is really just being with self and all aspects, all facets, all expressions, all layers of who I was, which was very confronting. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and it must have been very difficult because to take that deep dive within ourselves is a process in itself and it's a difficult process to really go through. How long were you in solitude? A type of solitude? Sure. At least 18 months in this sort of deep, extended... And that doesn't mean I didn't see anyone. Of course I saw people and I definitely had friendships still. I just really distanced myself from a lot. And then I started to emerge sort of out of that cocoon. There was still deep work to do after that, but it was a transition. I didn't have to be in that much solitude anymore. I, at least I felt that, right? Mm -hmm. And still, 
I valued solitude because I experienced the deep, deep wisdom that came from it. And so it was something that was very important to me still, but I was able to transition from that amount of solitude, maybe maybe call it extreme solitude, into living a more harmonious life and allowing people in to this newer version of me, or the newer version of me that was emerging, I should say. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. It didn't remind me particularly, but as you were talking about friendships, a moment struck in my head. It's from my favorite movie, Goodwill Hunting. Mm. There's a point where mm. Matt Damon's character and Ben Affleck's character, it's towards the end of the movie, where yeah. Matt Damon argues as to why is it that is not okay for him to pick up breaks and do construction work. And then Ben Affleck's character says something to the tune of, staying with us would mean that you are helping us. But that's not actually true. You're the only person that is our gateway out. If you do something with your life because you're so smart, I'm paraphrasing all of Mm. uh, what he says, but the essence was you getting out is for us to see that we can get out in a way. It's the allegory of the cave, man. Plato's allegory of the cave. Yeah. some level, right? Yeah. It's very powerful. It's really powerful. And I think that is consciously or unconsciously what you may have done for your friends while mm. taking that solitude and saying no, even while it was hard and even when it was difficult. And sometimes we have to do that, to be that light, to be that example, to be that person that maybe they need uh, in their life to be able to go, oh, okay, if that person who's my buddy, who's my childhood buddy, they may not see it immediately. Of course, that doesn't happen all the time. But what at least my experience has happened is more I've stepped away, I've met friends six months, a year, two years, five years later, 10 years later, where 10 years ago, they were like, that's an idiot. What is he doing with his life? And 10 years later, they see me today and they're like, wow, how can we have your life? Right? What is it that we missed? What's the difference? Because we both started at the same place. For that matter, most of the time they started ahead. They're like, what happened? Where did we lose path? And it was more because people like us are willing to sit down with ourselves and say, what do I truly want? What is it that who I am? And so I can be in alignment with it. And when you're in alignment with this, initially it looks silly and hard and difficult. Mm. But eventually, that's the path to great joy and alignment and bliss and creating things in our lives that we always wanted to create and getting really in that place of joy with life or flow with life. Mm. I think Ajit, to, to sum up what you just said then, and, and you said it very eloquently, for me and what's been very true for me and so many people that I've worked with over the years as clients, the deeper the inner work and the more we focus on our internal self and life becomes an inside-out reflection as opposed to an outside-in reflection, the greater external success we have. So the more inner work we do, the greater external success we have. It's, It's really as simple as that and is also as challenging as that. Yeah, I remember writing my first ever book. The book's called The Book of Coaching. It's actually right down there. The reason why I called it The Book of Coaching is because I wanted to document everything that I think is relevant to a coach Mm. and their business because that's one of the big challenges a coach faces and a lot of our community are coaches. And the first section of the book is called You. And the section covers the idea that you are the centerpiece of your business. If you are not there and if you are not you know, like sorted in some way or you're not clear on yourself in some way if you're not done the work and so forth. The second part of the book is your methodology, which is basically it will not work (laughs) because 
you will just conflict, constantly conflict with your methodology because you've not done the work yourself at all. And your business will definitely not work because your business is an expression of mm. you. And an extension. Extension mm. of you. And expression as an extension, good point, right? Of you, which right. means if you haven't done what needs to be done for you, you won't be able to express yourself. You won't be able to extend yourself. Mm. And it's not going to work. So you have to be in order. How did your life change from that state of being in, doing the shadow work, 18 months of solitude, coming out of that, to doing the kind of work that you do today? Today you are a coach to high performers, to men, to women, to relationships, all of the variety of people that you get to work with. Where did that sit? How did that transition happen? Mm. The interesting thing was I've been in the transformational space in the personal development industry since I was uh, 18. I'm 40 years old. So I'm no stranger to this industry. I've been here for quite some time. But what I was noticing, and I was very disparate. I was very all over the place. So I'd have my coaching clients. I'd, I'd be very blessed to work with some incredible human beings, like real high performers. Like we're talking Olympic gold medalists. A current gold men, they were current gold medalists. They weren't, even if they were past, they're still high performer. I mean, past and current, and elite special forces soldiers and special operations soldiers and just people at the upper echelon of their being. But it was inconsistent. Like there was so much inconsistency. In, and I would then go, oh, let me just try this business. And I got into trading or I got into building other businesses or whatever it may be, right? I would still do my coaching. I'd still be learning. And I'd still attempt to be an authority or at least an expert in that space. To some degree, maybe I was, but the inconsistency was so overwhelming. And again, I just ignored that. I ignored how am I the common denominator in this. And so as I moved through my stuff, like really going deep, as deep as I could go for the first time I'd ever in my life, I started noticing consistency. I started noticing clarity. So clarity in what I wanted. And I was able to say no to things that just weren't in alignment. Whereas before I couldn't, I was saying yes to everything because I had a fear of missing out. had a fear of that thing being the next thing and that could be my gravy train, right? I'd have to work hard for it, but it could be my gravy train. So I wasn't really thinking and coming from a place of let me slow down and pause and really live from a place of passion and authenticity and integrity. Let me just do the thing that's going to validate me and give me lots of money and then I'll be cool. I'll be loved. Everything will be okay. My dad will see how successful I am. That was an underpinning yearning and desire, right? That seeking of approval from him and then the unconscious projection onto other people, business partners, opportunities that were, let me be successful in this so I can get the approval that I need. And so that stopped, that slowed down. So clarity of mind got very clear on what I want. I was able to say no to the things that didn't align with me. And I was able to say yes and commit to my niche. Niche meaning, and I don't mean that from a marketing term, and what I mean from a place of marketing, I mean what was in deep alignment with my soul's calling. And that was to serve people. But I still knew I had to serve myself. And so I completely restructured the way I coached. And I took time away from that as well to like really center into myself, to be more in integrity with that, to be embodied. And there, were, there was a time when I thought I was ready to go back and I was not. And so I, pulled it back and I stopped and I stopped for another six months and revisited again. And so that discernment was a big part of my evolution and my growth as well. So the clarity, the discernment, the ability to experience consistency in my business, in my cash flow as well, that was very new to me. I was so inconsistent. I was was burn and build, man. 
<laughs> I was just replicating my, my childhood, you know, the volatility. <laughs> Burn and build. Some months would be thousands and thousands of dollars, never six figures back then, but, you know, good money and then months be dry. Mm. It was dry. I wasn't adept with money. I, I lacked business acumen. That all shifted when I did so much clearing, created space to, to learn and absorb new information, particularly around business. I always thought, no, nah, business is boring. I'm just going to follow my passion and be good at it and that will bring me money. There's truth to that, sure. And mm-hmm. we live in a 3D world where if I'm ignoring things that I think are difficult and why? Like why was I ignoring business? Why was I ignoring being smart and applying intelligent principles of making money? Because I grew up in an environment where money was very fickle. My parents, they were struggling week to week to pay bills. Money was the devil. Money was evil. Mm. Business wasn't something that was a common practice. Entrepreneurship wasn't something that was a common practice in my family growing up. So I had to unwind so many beliefs, man. I spent years working with business and money, not only from a spiritual perspective, from a pragmatic perspective as well. So a lot changed. My relationship to money changed. I got more structured in my businesses as well. I laid foundations that allowed me to accelerate and grow, right? Like from the ground up, set me up for success. That's, you know, my friendships became, the existing ones became deeper and the, the friendships I were, would attract were even in greater alignment with who I was and who I was becoming, not who I was previously. So there were a lot of profound changes. A big one, my relationship to women, to sex, to intimacy, to love. The way I saw women was far less me objectifying them for let me have an outcome here and the outcome is to, you know, to experience sexual pleasure for them, for me. For, it was more about how can I serve this person? How can I give to this person? As opposed to how can I take from this person? Whether it was a woman or a man, I don't mean that in a sexual context, just in, in business relationship. Like how can I give? How can I be additive to this person's life? I feel like I've taken so much in my life. And as a result of that, and really just coming from a very real place there, I was experiencing great abundance in receiving and receiving was very difficult for me because I didn't deem myself to be worthy. So that was another deep lesson and sometimes still is as well. I mean, I'll share a very quick story. When I first came to the US, you know, Christine, my wife now, she was earning maybe 25x more than what I was making, right? And she's not making any less now, by the way. And, and, and now, you know, fast forward, those tides have turned immensely. But, you know, she saw me, she supported me, she believed in me, she saw my value, she saw everything else that I was and that I was rebuilding myself in that, in that respect. But I remember a time where I shipped all these clothes over from Australia and, and USPS, God bless them, they lost my clothes. It was like two full suitcases of clothes. I'm like, ah, oh, I have clothes. And at that point, this is very early on in our relationship, I was still in debt but I was making my payments. And anyway, I couldn't afford to buy clothes. So she took me and we bought a big wardrobe of clothes. That was very difficult for me, man. Very difficult to accept that. We went back and forth. We didn't argue, but we just, no, don't need it. It's not happening. I couldn't accept it. I couldn't receive. So it was big, big, deep lessons in compassion and non-judgment and receiving and empathy, just being with my now wife, you know, over the last four years. There were still lessons that were trickling through when I met her, but I was foundational in my being. By that stage, I'd really done, you know, a good five, six years of some really deep work, you know, consistent deep work. So we met when I was foundational in my being. Beautiful. I think the great reminder or the great 
recognition that I can see in what you're sharing today is, I think, a lot of us because of how we are structured as society and how things happen around us all the time or how the story of things happen around us all the time is we are in a very, I've started my coaching business. I must get success in the first year, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year. I love that you share, dude, I've been coaching off and on since I was 18. It's 22 years if I calculated this Mm -hmm. right. Uh, Off and on, off and on, but still off and on. Mainly on. And mainly on. Mainly on, yeah. But that's, it's a long period of time for somebody, and of course it shows in your mastery of the thing, but to be able to stay consistent with something, irrespective of how the season is going, you love it eventually, is what I assume, right? Is to stay with it and say, I'm going to keep doing the work. And it's okay if it's going to take the time for me to get to a place where, of course, now you are one of the top coaches in the world and so on and so forth, but it took the time and to recognize that it takes the time I think that's really important and the key for anybody that's listening is it's cool to hear that story to say, oh yeah, they were like an overnight success. And it seems like a lot of stories are told that way. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I did this thing in my business and then my business blew up. And what we don't see is, yes, you did that thing, but to do that thing, it took you 18 years, 12 years, 10 years, five years, whatever the time was Mm -hmm. for you to finally go, oh, it worked. But you had been trying to do that thing for five years before that or seven years before. It wasn't working. But the narrative, of course, impacts people, right? And it creates and breeds this intensity that everybody wants to have in their career. I remember talking to one of our clients and she was saying, hey, I would like to make $200,000 next year in my coaching business. And I was like, all right, how long have you been doing coaching? Last year is when I started. I was like, okay, was the highest amount of money you've ever made in your life. And she alluded to, I think, $35,000 a year. They were from a different country. So it was still good money for the country. But like $35,000 a year. I would like, so you want to jump from $35,000 a year that you've been making by working 15, 20 years in a career to in a single year, go from 35000 to 200000 Why do you believe so? Well, everybody says you should be making that and that's when you're successful. I was like, well, stop listening to everybody, <laughs> first of all, because who is this everybody? Uh, and then let's really talk about what all needs to change, like you talked about. Like you had to let go of your business beliefs. You had to let go of a lot of shadow work that you had to do. There's a lot of work that went into to get to a place where you are today. And I want to kind of capture that because it's so important for people to hear that it's okay to take your time. Oh, it's got to be okay to take your time. But we live in a world that is so fast-paced and so immediate and so quick fix and short-term gratification that we think, especially men, that if we're not doing, if we're not productive, if we're not achieving, and if we're not doing that at greater rates than our peers, we're failing. And if we're failing, we're less than, we're unworthy. And that triggers many unresolved childhood insecurities and big, big pain for us. And I I heard Peter Diamandis once say, I was an overnight success in 10 years. (laughs) And I really resonated with that. And it very much speaks to what you just shared then, right? But back to that insecurity piece. So we will force, we will force, we'll try and put a square peg through a round hole and we will force success because we think that if we don't have what we believe to be success, we are unworthy. People will leave us. People will reject us. We will be humiliated. We will be abandoned. 
And when we look at these great fears, these are unresolved fears within us that we haven't addressed yet that are amplifying our need to be someone that we don't really fully want to be. We think we want to be that. We think society wants us to be that, but that's not the case. And so this is where the inner work comes in. This is where the inner observation, the inner exploration, asking questions of ourselves. How did I behave today in that argument that I had with my wife? Could I have been better? Could I have done better? Could I have done differently? Well, what did that look like? Where did that really come from? Is it really about leaving a dish in the sink or is there something else around that? We just don't reflect on our life experiences. We don't take the time, most of us do not take the time. Remember, there's 8 billion people in the world. Let's not talk about your concentric circle of influence and who you, is in your life or in my life. Like, yes, we mix with people that think and feel similarly to us and also I think we're aware enough that we also mix with people that think contrarian to us because that's what we know, that's what helps us expand, right? Most people are just stuck on a hamster wheel. Let's be real, right? Most people are stuck on a hamster wheel. And so they're not taking the time or they don't have the ability either because they're, they're fighting to survive. Ajit as well, you know, and so there are so many developing nations out there where people are just fighting to survive and they don't have time to think about existential issues or philosophical contemplation and how they can evolve their inner psychological world. They don't even know what those terms mean. We're privileged in that sense to have access to that. That word privilege is quite loaded in today's world. I mean, it is a blessing. It's probably a better way to say it's a blessing that we have access to even be able to think about this. And my take on that is if we have access to that and it's available to us, it is our duty, responsibility maybe. It is our dharma. It is our obligation to do something with that, to then impact others just by being in their presence and coming into contact with them. We feel that. We feel that in our own nervous systems. It's called neuroception. Like I know that you are safe. I know that the cameraman, the videographer here is safe because I feel it in my nervous system. I don't think he's going to pull out a gun or a knife or, or hurt me or anything <laughs> like that. Like we feel that we're very intelligent, intuitive, innate beings, physiologically and psychologically. But if we don't give ourselves an opportunity to access that, then we can't possibly impact anyone else around us either. So it is our duty and obligation if we have information to do something that knowledge is power. And we have to have responsibility with that power as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel that's the thing that, like just the attention that you brought, there's 8 billion people in the world and there's so many that do not have the availability of resources that a lot of the listeners and watchers of this dialogue have. And it is somewhat our responsibility to, in whatever capacity we can, bring it to the world, but it's going to take the time that's mm. going to take. And, and you got to get comfortable with that and get comfortable with the pace of building something. What was your mindset like or what was your thought process like? Because I'm sure there must have been moments in the past 20 some years of building a business where you said, why am I doing this? This is not making any sense. I'm not getting anywhere. Mm. I feel defeated. Mm. I feel lost. I feel confused. I mean, I go through it. Mm. I'm sure you've gone through it. Was there a process? Was there something that you eventually got to a place where you're like, this one works for me every time I get to that place. Mm. So I'm very tenacious. I'm also very stubborn. So what I would do is I would leverage my shadow, right? And so my stubbornness and my inability to want to fail, I just don't want to fail. However, I perceive failure, even though I know failure is, is healthy. You know, fail forward, fail fast, fail frequently. Like I, I get all that and I really get it. I, and I embody that too. 
And there's a part of me that's like, no, I'm not going to fail. So I'm just going to keep going and keep going. And I can wear myself out and burn myself out and that can be another conversation. But I would leverage my shadow in terms of part of that mindset. But what I then started to do was actually become at greater peace with my shadow. And when I did that, I stopped pushing so hard and forcing. And I also, I want to mention the fixed mindset and growth mindset. And one of the reasons why I, I focus so much on just being stubborn was because I had this fixed mindset growing up of, oh, I just can't do it. And if I don't know how to do it, then I'll never learn. Basically, if I'm not born with it, if I'm not born knowing it, I can't do it. And there was a big part of me that, that, that had that. But then the other side, because we're made of different parts, right? Our personalities and our psyches. I don't mean in a fractured sense where we have split personalities. I mean, we have different ways of viewing the world, vantage points, belief systems that compete with each other, complement each other, et cetera. And then the other part of me was, I've got to work really hard to achieve anything. So I would just work really, really hard. And that would often outcompete the, I can't do this. And what I ended up moving towards was I can learn this and I can learn it at my own pace. So I started to slow down. I started to pull back. And I started noticing that the more I slowed down and paused and believed that I can learn this new skill that's required to accelerate this part of my business, maybe it was digital marketing and software, right? And I had to either learn that or outsource it, but I had to know enough to be dangerous. I would just say to myself, well, let me spend some time learning this. Let me spend... 10 hours learning it. Let me just see how that goes. I'll reevaluate in 10 hours. So I was just slowing down. I didn't have to rush. Yes, I had timelines. Yes, I had objectives that I'd need to achieve by a certain time, but I wasn't putting this unhealthy pressure on myself. And so working with limiting beliefs within myself, whether it's around business, around money, around personal, um, because that obviously, again, business is an extension of who we are, an expression of who we are. And so working with those actively, I saw changes in my business. But the main things is moving from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, being in deeper communion with my shadows as opposed to just leveraging them and being stubborn in that, and then slowing down, like really, really slowing down to go faster. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. That was big for me. Beautiful, beautiful. And I love, I think the essence of that that I'm picking is the awareness that you have as to how do you leverage your personal power in a way. Yeah. Like to know I need to slow down, to know... I don't need to rely on my shadows. I can integrate them into my being. Yes. I think there's a great message beyond just the strategies that work for you is the understanding of self, of what is true for us, is what really creates that momentum or creates that ability to overcome particular challenge that may be repeating and will be repeating itself again and again and again which is so, so important and vital for our community. They, they tend to be coaches. A lot of them tend to be in the first five years of their business, which is where you need a lot of tenacity. You need a lot of grit. You need a lot of stubbornness. You need a lot of awareness, really, essentially, yeah. to see how you can fuel yourself to be able to create or get past that challenge because that challenge is going to keep coming. Yeah. The challenge of not being consistent is a very common challenge that happens because you are the business. You can turn it up, turn it down, depending on your mood. So how do you regulate <laughs> that? How do you optimize that? How do you create consistency? But it's going to be personal to the person. Yeah. Do you also train coaches in a very particular model? Have you found any tool that's useful for people to find awareness of themselves oh. or discover themselves a little yeah. bit better? So many. The first that I'll mention is breath work as a somatic tool of exploration. And it is an emotional tool of exploration as well. And so 
what particular practices or particular methodologies of breath work do is activate parts of our physiology in our brain that release, repress and suppress emotions and even memories and thoughts that we haven't fully completed, the cycle of or haven't dealt with, which then can lead to the beginning stages of closing loops of trauma. And all of that is linked to limitations that we place on ourselves, whether they're limiting beliefs or they're limiting thoughts or they're even stagnation, like we won't move towards something because there's a fear, there's a retraction in our nervous system and in our bodies. And so over time in the right environments, in safe environments, uh, and patience, and slowing down. It's got to be methodical. It's got to be titrated and it has to be pendulated. And what that means is that we move very slow with these new highly charged emotional experiences that give us great insight and wisdom and create spaciousness in our body to be free of what has limited us and held us back. And the pendulation is that we go in and out. It was the, the edge that I spoke to earlier, right? So we'll go into the experience to the edge of dysregulation we don't want to feel too out of control because then we can plummet very deep, very hard and it can be, I mean, it can lead to psychosis, right? Mm -hmm. It can lead to practice-induced psychosis or substance-induced psychosis. That's why we have to be very careful with plant medicines, as an example, in the Western world. Probably another conversation. So, <laughs> so it's that we're going to bring ourselves to and we're going to engage our somatic resources or grounding resources or our tools to regulate our nervous system again. And again, we live to fight another day. But breath work as a modality can be very powerful for that exploration. And what I love about it, firstly, it basically saved my life. Like I was on the verge of suicide and, and a friend said, man, this lady's here. She's come from Europe. She's an excellent breathwork practitioner. This was years ago. This was when I was in my hell. Like, and, she, and I said, I didn't know what that is, but whatever. That's, I've got an idea of what it is, but yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Change my life. And that's when I started learning and teaching and educating myself. And, and, and that's when I, that was a big turning point in my life as well, actually. And that was a few years after that I sort of plummeted again. And, you know, it was waves, right? And so that's why I'm so connected to breath work. Another reason why I really believe in it is because I've seen, I've worked with thousands and thousands of people with this. I've seen what it's done to me firstly, what it's, how it's helped me, what it's allowed me to access within myself and how that's also happened for others. And so to me, it can be, in the right environment, the right practitioner, the right support, a very safe tool for exploration. Because here's the thing, we'll use plant medicine as an example. And let me be very clear, I, I'm not demonizing plant medicine. I'm an advocate. I regularly use it as a tool for consciousness and exploration myself. However, it can be misused. It can be very dangerous. As psychotherapy can be dangerous as well. But with plant medicine, if you're in and it becomes too overwhelming, good luck getting out until that substance wears off. Your physiology has control of you. With breath work, you change your breath pattern within seconds to maybe minutes, you're in a regulated state. Mm. There's great power in that. And there's great power in knowing that. Because when we know that, we're more willing to go a little deeper. Mm. We have more courage because we know that we're in greater control. Control is very important to the human being. <laughs> And so, yeah, that's right. And so that's one of the reasons why breathwork is a powerful tool for the question that you asked. Beautiful, beautiful. Is there a particular breathwork modality that you recommend? There's, there's or a couple. It's like, yeah. yeah, so there's transformational breath, biodynamic, holotropic, those kinds of 
They're mm. very similar, by the way, but that style of breath work can be deeply enriching in terms of affecting and impacting consciousness and, and one's self-perception. Mm. Okay. It's beautiful, beautiful. I've used breath work in my life, but never as a tool of awareness. Mm. So it's interesting. For, I'll take for you me. through one day yeah. if you want. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I know I'm, I'm long overdue to some of the events that you guys host. Steph, it was a fantastic conversation. Where is it that the audience here, people here can learn more about your work? What would be the best channel? Yeah, either my website, stephanosafandos.com or Instagram at stephanosafandos. Can you spell that for people? 100%, yeah. <laughs> S-T-E-F-A-N-O-S-S-I-F. A-N-D-O-S. That's Stefano's Instagram <laughs> handle and the website. If you Google right. him, it'll autocorrect and it'll take you to the right 100%. website even if you get loosely the spelling right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stefano. Any last message that you have for our listeners today? Yeah, man, I'm a big fan of willingness. I mean, I spoke to that stubbornness earlier, right? But willingness is can be the, the counter side to that. It doesn't come from the shadow. It comes from a, a place of knowing self. And so... When wherever in challenging times, difficult times, you know, resiliency is our ability to recover from challenge and bring us forth to the next wave of challenge or evolution of our own life. Willingness, the decision to say, I'm willing to move through this and learn and grow and face all that comes to me, not just the convenient or the desirable, not just the happiness or the joy or the wins, but I'm going to be with the losses, I'm going to be with the sadness, I'm going to be with the loss, I'm going to be with the anger, I'm going, to, I'm going to be with all of it. And having a willingness to do that, I truly believe, and, and I've experienced this directly, it makes for a, whole, a more whole human being, a more impactful human being, more closer to our sovereign selves. I mean, if you lined up 100 people and you said, would you rather be whole or feel whole or would you rather feel fractured? Unless someone has a pathology, you've got 100 out of 100 people saying, give me wholeness. It's our natural state. And so when we are willing to face all of ourselves, we move closer towards wholeness. We embody that at a deeper level. So willingness for me is a deep, deep character virtue that I hope everyone can embody. Thank you so much, Stefan. It was amazing talking to you. Oh,